The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My guest today is Judith Dada, general partner at La Familia, a European VC investing in early stage digital disruptors like uh, Binomics and Y42. So, uh, Judith, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up game plan. Thanks so much for having me. Just to kick things off, what attracted you to the world of VC and tech entrepreneurship? I would say that my path into venture was not a very linear one. Back in the day, I wanted to become a doctor. I then wanted to become a journalist. And I had never really considered a career in venture capital. It wasn't until a lot later when I was actually working um, at Facebook and was you know, seeing the amazing ways in which technology can help businesses grow and you know, be connecting people, be it in just solving problems for people out there that I got really, really fascinated by the whole world of entrepreneurship and technology more broadly. And I think that really then for me sparked an interest in coming into this, you know, open, wide and, and fascinating world of, of venture capital. But it really was through a couple of back doors and not a very kind of straightforward path for me. It's quite unusual in my experience to see someone come from a company like Facebook or Google, you had a sales role at Facebook, and then become a VC without doing something in the middle, typically a, a, an MBA course to transition into the world of VC. So how difficult was it for you to make that, that transition? It wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be in the beginning. So I did have a quick stunt at business school back in 2015 when I was in New York and I did study kind of, you know, business and economics for, for undergrad. But I would actually say that I don't necessarily think that's the most important skill set to have as a VC these days. I think more broadly speaking, you know, pattern recognition, being able to connect with people and trends and being able to extrapolate what we think might happen in the future. That's something that is a deeply human skill set. It's almost you know, it's a mix of, of, of a science and an art. It's, it's, it's more of a craft, I would say. It's something that you learn on the job and you learn kind of, you know, throughout your whole life, be it in, you know, kind of the relationships that you form when you're still very young, be it in, you know, the way that you experience the world and the way that you start thinking about the world and start thinking about what's going on around us. I think that's really the the VC skill set. And of course, you know, then there's books to read and, you know, like all the legals that you need to, you know, familiarize yourself with. And I had many, many nights where I just went through, you know, like all of the different clauses of a term sheet, like, you know, really trying to learn the craft kind of bottom up. But at the end of the day, it's no rocket science, thank God. It's all pretty straightforward. So I think if you put your head down and you're willing to, you know, read a bunch of, of books, you can actually learn the pure kind of infrastructure of the craft pretty quickly. And I think then the beauty of VC is that this whole path of learning never stops, right? It's just this continuous journey of trying to understand what is happening around us and the things that we believe to be true yesterday that are no longer true today and will certainly no longer be true tomorrow. I think that's really the, the beauty of this, of this job. So besides pattern recognition, what do you think are the other really important um, attributes of the craft 
being a VC? I think always being able to see what's in front of you rather than what you would like the world to look like. I really think that when it comes to trends and when it comes to markets changing, you know, timing kind of unfolding in front of our eyes, it's very easy to get kind of stuck in things that we just learned to be true, right? We like typically this market should behave like this and typically customer acquisition would work like this, but then things change, right? And, and, and very often in times of change is when the most extraordinary outlier companies are created. So I think always being open and not thinking that you should know it all and should be able to analyze all the last pieces of what's happening by way of all the prior knowledge that you've gathered, but still keeping kind of a, a healthy skepticism, I would say, but also just, you know, a humbleness to a certain extent of not knowing what will happen and then just being willing to follow the path of an entrepreneur and, and trying to see what it what they are seeing, even though in the beginning, it might not be something that you thought you could ever see, but just really asking not why couldn't this work, but constantly asking yourself, if this would work, then, you know, what would that mean for the world? And what would that mean for this company? I think that's the, the main thing. You're doing some policy work with the EU on uh, migration. What experiences have shaped your views on migration? And, and how does this policy work complement your work as a VC? So my father came to Germany more than 30 years ago as a Nigerian immigrant. So I'm a proud Afro-German citizen um, and, and also citizen of the world. And so seeing, you know, the impact that migration had on the journey of my father, on my own journey, you know, a different perspective that I've always been able to have on life. I think it's perspective that when I was still young and, and, you know, faced quite a bit of racism, you know, growing up also I struggled with, but over time I've really learned to, to appreciate. And I think that unfortunately today and, and throughout the last couple of years, there's been a, a predominant narrative of migration in Europe. And, and that's not a very fun, promising or hopeful narrative, but it's one of, of fear, of despair, you know, of, 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 of stories being depicted in the news that I think are really harmful um, and, and don't really convey, I think, the immense power that migration can have for our economies. And I am very fascinated, I think, especially these days, if you, you know, read the news and you see what's happening post-COVID with regard to the insane pressure on the labor market and almost every single business out there really struggling to find talent that, you know, ranges from highly skilled workers all the way to, you know, non-skilled jobs or non-skilled professions. So I think this insane pressure on the market really means that if we don't figure out how to positively think about migration as a real solution for sustainable growth and sustainable societies, then I think we're all going to struggle being able to maintain the levels of, of, of wealth and prosperity that we've enjoyed over the last couple of decades. And so really thinking about, you know, from a startup perspective, obviously, because startups are hiring constantly all the time and they're they're always in need of, of, of better talent. They're, they're very happy to hire from all around the world. And now with the amazing opportunities that remote work offers as well, you know, I've really come to kind of form a very strong interest in, in migration, but also the challenges that still remain when it comes to migration. I think one of the things that we're really seeing is, you know, any person that's not based in Europe or not born and raised here, they don't think about, you know, necessarily coming to Germany or coming to France or, or coming to Belgium. They think about coming to Europe and they see the opportunity 
in Europe as the opportunity that it should be, which is a cross-country opportunity. But unfortunately, a lot of the migration, you know, taxation laws that we still have today are kind of country by country. And thank God there have recently been some changes, especially to the blue card, which is the one of the primary kind of um, migration mechanisms or, or, or visa mechanisms for, for skilled labor to come to Europe. There's been more harmonization. There's been, you know, more flexible uh, requirements when it comes to the salary base that you need to earn and, and some other changes that, that I really welcome. But there's a lot of challenges that still remain. I think we really need to think about how we can also extend the blue card or extend flexible visa requirements to lower levels of, 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 of skills, um, not just the highly skilled workers, but like all the labor shortages that we're going to see. And so that's a topic I feel really passionate about. I think we need to speak about migration in really positive terms and to see the innovation potential that lies behind it. And that's something I'm also saying widely to and loudly to the European Commission and the German government. Uh-huh. And I guess a related topic in some ways. I know you're passionate about diversity in tech. What do you feel are the biggest challenges for tech startups and scale-ups from a diversity perspective? And, and what are you and your colleagues at La Familia doing to address those challenges? So I think it's actually interesting. I think there's two main challenges. The one challenge really lies in female talent in, in the tech world and also female entrepreneurs and, and their funding. There's many studies that show that startups that have at least one female co-founder, but especially all female co-founders raise significantly less capital than startups that only have male co-founders. So I think this equity gap, but also to a certain extent, just brain drain, one could say, right? I'm, I'm strongly, I'm a strong believer in the fact that you know, talent and opportunity and ambition is distributed equally. So if we just look at, you know, all of the challenges that we're facing today, if you look at climate change in this year and the insane amounts of catastrophes that we've seen all around the globe, like we better tap into every single brain out there to find solutions. And today we're not doing that effectively. We're only tapping into a very, very small pool of, of, of capable people and we're leaving a lot of other great capable women, especially, um, you know, kind of out on the street and not being able to really help bring their ideas to life and, and, and form solutions. So I think that's that's one of the key drivers of why I think diversity is going to become crucial if we really are serious about solving for the world's most, most urgent challenges. I think next to fairness considerations and, and also, you know, the quality of, of work, you know, where many studies show that diverse teams just perform better. It's not just about tapping into more brains. It's also that if you have a diverse set of brains working together, the outcomes tend to be better than if you have a homogenous set of brains working together. So these are all considerations that I think just show us that as, you know, market pressures get really strong and as we really can't afford to not tap into every single talent out there, we really need to figure out how we can um, create for a more equitable world um, in venture and, and the startup world. So I think that's the one perspective. And then the other perspective, and unfortunately, there's a, a lot less data on this. And I, I know of a few local initiatives that are now starting to collect this data, but it's the whole um, migration issue, again, from a diversity perspective, because diversity does not just mean gender. It also means many, many other variables. And, and they are, unfortunately, what we're seeing in Germany is that startups that have founders with a migration background, especially if they're founders that don't come from EU or, you know, kind of um, other uh, wealthy countries, raise significantly lower amounts of capital. And interestingly, those gaps do not decline over time um, as, 
you know, you always speak about the first generation and the second generation of migrants or the first generation of other ones that actually moved countries. So they were born in a different country. And then the second generation are, um, so to speak, the children of migrant parents that were born in, in the country that they're parents migrated to. And what we see is that the, this, this gap in funding does not kind of, you know, does not decrease in between those two generations, which means that even as, you know, you kind of acclimatize to the country that you migrated to, some of these structural challenges still persist. And unfortunately, the data is not very strong here. We need to collect a lot more data to figure out why this is and how we can help address these challenges. But really thinking critically about um, what we can do here, you know, it, be it in terms of anti-bias training, I think what would be one uh, way to go. Is it in terms of just, you know, bigger awareness campaigns, is it in terms of special resources that we can provide to really make sure we decrease the gap and make sure we have a more equitable funding landscape, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your sexual orientation is. Um, I think that's going to be crucial in the next couple of years. What do you think are the implications of remote working on diversity in tech, both from a, an ethnicity perspective, but also from a agenda perspective? Does remote working offer more opportunities for improving both sort of aspects of diversity? A hundred percent, at least for the ethnicity part. So I'm, you know, half Nigerian. I've met some fantastic startups based in Nigeria and elsewhere in Africa that are really enabling super strong development ta developer talent there to, you know, start working for European companies and give them access to a labor market that, you know, Previously, they were really excluded from. And I think that's a bigger trend that we've seen. And again, what is interesting to see is that startups that have at least one co-founder that has a migration background, on average, attract more international talent. So we really see this, these strong kind of reinforcement loops where, you know, the more migration we have and the more successful migrant founders we have, the more we can then also tap into kind of the second, third and fourth layers of talent, you know, that come with that. And I think with remote work, and people being able to work from anywhere, that's a trend wave that I'm very grateful for, that I think our startups are very grateful for, and, um, and that we're going to continue seeing more of. I saw some graph from Gartner, which was pretty crazy in terms of just showing the change of, you know, the amount of remote work that was done in, in different countries around the world in, in 2019, and then what levels they think that will go up to, you know, in 2022 and to 2025, and many countries kind of offering more than 50% of the, of the workforce, you know, some form of permanent remote working condition. I think that's fantastic. Now, when it comes to gender, I think the story is a lot more complicated. I think we've also all been witnessing different stories that unfolded, you know, throughout COVID and this, this huge remote work wave that we've all been living in. You know, we've heard of, of women that really were empowered to, you know, finally, you know, be able to stay home, be able to, you know, do things a lot more flexibly where before they felt they had to be present in the office. We've also heard from fathers who, you know, for the first time were able to really enjoy their newborn children or be able to spend more time. I think this should have already been the norm pre-COVID, but I think it really took COVID for some parents to realize what a joy it can be to spend time with family. I think the, the other side of the story is, you know, the many statistics that show that during COVID, a lot of families kind of reverted back to very traditional and antiquated patterns of housework, which is the woman virtually does almost everything that 
happens at home, be it childcare, be it, you know, all the cleaning, all the housework that goes on. And I think this is a, this is a pattern that we've seen for a very long time. And there's an interesting book called Invisible Women about the data bias in the world and, and, and how the data in the world is, is very, very biased against women. We talk about it a lot within our team. And what I think is interesting is that until this day, we don't really have a good definition of the work that happens at home. We, we talk about work typically as something that happens in the workplace. And we talk about stuff that happens at home more in terms of care, right? We say we care for children, we care for the elderly. And so, you know, this care work has in the past been associated with female work, whereas the work work has been associated with male work. And I think because we really failed to speak about the work that happens with children, with the elderly, all the chores that happen inside the home as work in the same sense as the work that happens in the workplace and in, in the same kind of value terms as well. I think that's really holding women back until today in terms of really having an equitable position when it comes to the, the partnership they have with men or with you know whatever partnerships they're forming inside their communities. And until we really start to address the work that happens at home as actual work. And we also form taxation mechanisms, you know, for much better tax breaks. France is a little bit leading in this, but for example, in Germany, the tax breaks for, you know, being able to support private childcare or also, um, you know, someone to come to your home and, and help with the cleaning are still rather low, right? So I'm not saying it's, it's bad to pay women for staying home and to pay men for staying home and they want to take care of the work at home themselves. But I think if men or women decide to go back to work and need someone else to do that work because it's work, it's not just care, it's also work, then we need to find ways of making sure they don't get penalized on, on, an, on a net income basis or household income basis for that. And so a lot of change, I think that's still needed. And a lot of the terminology that's been around since the 1970s, 1980s, a lot of this is like, you know, research that was done in Sweden on, you know, all these different chores and all the different dimensions of labor and unpaid labor that women do in the home. And still today in, you know, 2021, I feel we haven't really found the language and understanding to really address this. So there are some major society and policy challenges that need to be addressed at the micro level. What are you and your colleagues at La Familia doing to address these challenges of diversity within your portfolio? So I think the first thing is being present and being visible. Every single founder, be it a female founder or a male founder, has brought up the topic of diverse hiring with us almost, you know, within the first couple of conversations that we have when we onboard companies. We have a big also folder of different information, different talent networks, different strategies and kind of awareness mechanisms that we provide to portfolio founders as well to make sure they they have all the resources they need to feel well equipped to, to hire a diverse talent base. So I think also because our team at La Familia is quite diverse. We've got, you know, many women on the team. We've got many amazing investors with migration background. It's kind of something that within our culture has always been the norm. For us, diversity was never a challenge because we were kind of diverse by default and that attracted more diversity. And, and so thank God we've never actually struggled ourselves with diversity, but we know that it can be challenging, especially when it comes to hiring for, for more technical roles. So we just really try and, you know, connect to some talent networks and make sure that, you know, folks have all the resources they need to do that well. So that's what we're trying to do on 
the micro level. And then I think also just trying to make people understand that the work that we do can be flexible. I think that's all of the, that's the privilege that all of us working in tech have, right? None of us are doctors that need to be at the hospital or in the practice to do their jobs. And, and even there we're seeing, you know, with kind of, you know, remote tooling, maybe some of that can also be challenged. Maybe some of, some of that can also be changed. But I think the beauty of working in technology is it doesn't really matter where you work. And I actually think it's one of the sectors from a pure structural perspective that should allow for the highest amount of flexibility and should thus be really able to champion kind of diversity and especially a female diversity when it comes to offering new ways of working and, and, and much more flexible ways of working. I know that one of your other interests is AI to automate human productivity. And uh, as a proud new owner of a, an amazing robot lawnmower that uses AI to quietly and flawlessly mow our extremely large and rather complicated garden, I can personally vouch for the ability of AI to beautifully automate some pretty boring processes. What are your views on the areas besides lawn mowing, of course, um, with the greatest potential for AI and automation? So I think automation actually is a term that kind of to me shows how little we today understand about all the different facets of how technology is going to enable the work that we do. I think automation as a term is actually only applicable to a small set of tasks that can be fully automated, right? So it could be, you know, fully autonomous cars. It could be, you know, kind of an end-to-end -end process that you just automate. And before it took maybe two hours and now it's going to take, I don't know, you know, two minutes or two seconds sometimes. And, you know, be that, you know, picking in, in warehouses, you know, be that different manufacturing processes. There's a lot of different tasks that can be fully automated. But then I think there's a bigger piece here, which I would rather call augmentation or enablement or assistance. Again, I think we're, we're still trying to really find the language of, of how we speak about, you know, how we work with robots or how we work with machines. But I actually think the more juicy and interesting part of, of work is, you know, how humans and technology will interact. And, and it's, I don't think it's necessarily about technology automating productivity. I think it's about technology really assisting us as humans and us having quite an active role as well in, in, in kind of, you know, assisting technology, if, if you want to call it that, right. And really instructing technology when uh, you could call it, you know, just data labeling at the end and, you know, just, just feeding, feeding um, certain models, but, but really being able to understand the processes that make up our work and then being able to, you know, step-by-step step think about which of these process or which of these steps in the process are actually crucial for me to have, you know, kind of my, to leave my human mark in and, and which of the steps actually, you know, can just be better done by a machine. And I think in theory, this, these are concepts that we all understand super well, but I've actually seen that across different business departments and organizations, often we don't really think about the processes that, you know, make up our day-to-day -day work. Um, if I were to ask, you know, like, like just, you know, write down the, you know, 25 processes that make up your, you know, kind of weekly work schedule, you know, it takes us some time to actually sit down and think about, okay, hold on, like I've got this interface and then this interface and then I do this and then I think about that and then I research that. And so it's, it's quite multifaceted and complex, which does not necessarily make it easier to, you know, bring technology in. But I think that's the beautiful challenge that we're going to have to solve for in the next decade. And where I think a ton of value creation will be possible because a lot of the 
the time that we now spend doing pretty stupid manual tasks and just copying things from left to right, you know, just moving files, you know, can just be abstracted away. And we can then really spend our time, you know, connecting to humans and, and really making sure that we focus on the more creative or more complex parts of the work that often are also the more fun parts. And so I think that's something that's quite exciting and, and something that we think about a lot. I think today we think about it more in terms of verticals. So we think about it as the augmentation and assistance that will happen in HR and marketing and sales and sales, especially we're already seeing a lot of, you know, AI being applied, being, being in companies like Gong, you know, that really try and help you, you know, put some more analytics into the, the sales work that you're doing. Or also, you know, kind of email assistance where parts of the emails get automated and you just in the end insert like a little personal message to make sure, you know, you still maintain that human connection. But I think there's other parts of the organization where there's a lot more value to be captured from these types of systems. And so that's a keen investment interest that we have. And where do you stand in the debate about the dangers or the potential dangers of AI to human society? Oh, I definitely think we need to take it seriously. I think anything, you know, in the world that has great potential always comes with great challenges and, and dangers. I particularly think that it's important. And, and I think the, the tech world has shown us that, you know, if we, if we look at the biggest moral failures or ethical failures of, of the last decade, you know, you know, Facebook comes to mind as a company that I deeply respect, but also I think has had a, a lot of challenges and, and things they could have done better when it comes to the way they curate content and the and the role that they see their platform playing in society twitter you know is another company so i think that what we've seen in the past is it's never a good idea to form systems that could potentially scale at you know lightning speed and not have people other than computer scientists and product managers around the table i think we need to find ways of including you know broader sets of society in technological debates and 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 decision making you know psychologists social scientists ethnologists like a lot of different professions come to mind here to just make sure we at least try and understand potential effects and also second order effects you know that our technological decisions and and the product that we put out there could have and we're then able to take decisions that really have the broadest impact measurement input included in that decision-making rather than, you know, always being just a small set of society that decides at the end about, you know, some very powerful systems that at the end decide about, you know, that the fate of, you know, essentially more and more all of us, because none of us are not touched by technology anymore. And, and as it really creeps into all aspects of our lives, private and, and professional, I do think that's very important. And who are some of the key thinkers, innovators in the in the world of um, AI that have really impressed and inspired you? People that you'd recommend I or my listeners should should check out, maybe read their books or listen to their podcasts and so on. I need to recommend Luciano Floridi, which is one of my you know former professors from the Oxford Internet Institute, who does some fantastic work on the socio-ethical value and implications of digital technologies. He's a really great mind. He he does some really really great research. There's also now um, a couple of research institutes. There's one 
in collaboration, I think, with Facebook and Apple um, at my alma mater in, in, in Munich as well, the, the LMU, and there's a couple of others at the University of Oxford and some other leading universities. So I do think, you know, the tech world is also starting to listen and is also trying to form partnerships and trying to get this, you know, broader input from, from people. But Luciano Floridi, especially, he writes, you know, different articles and, and, and books. I, I highly recommend you check out his work. Okay, I'll uh, reach out to Luciano and name check you <laughs> um, when I make uh, make contact with him. Judith, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the Startup to Scale Up game plan and for sharing your fascinating journey and all those learnings with me. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up game plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.